Take your Bible, please, and meet me in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. I want to echo what Andre shared earlier. What a tremendous gift we enjoyed last Sunday as we welcomed those from Spring Valley Church and worshiped with them. What a celebration of unity and oneness as the people of God. And, and I just want to say, East Parkway, how thankful and proud I am of you and how hospitable you were and just what a wonderful day that was together with that congregation. And it was interesting to me that to, when I learned that they are working their way through the book of Acts just as we are. And so when uh, Pastor Bill and I decided to tag team a message, uh, we, we wanted to hit the main theme in Acts. And so we titled our message, We Are the Sent. And we decided that he would do the we part and I would do the sent part. And that was actually my first experience of tag teaming a sermon like that. He's done that a couple of times with some of his staff in their church. That was my first experience, and uh, it was a good experience. I'm glad that I had that opportunity. And by we, remember some of the points that, that he brought forth, is that by we, we mean that we are individuals, that you, as an individual, uh, have significance in the eyes of God. We are individuals. We are the church that uh, as an individual, you are born into a body of believers. And it's God's design that, that we live life together because faith is developed in this context here. We are, the, we are individuals. We are the church. And then he said, we are the kingdom of God. We are representatives of the kingdom. And we are sent to share in the ministry of Jesus. We are sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are sent as ambassadors for Christ in this world. Now, isn't that what we read, uh, what we discover as we read through Acts, through this book? We see individuals coming to faith in Christ then coming together as the church to be a living embodiment of the kingdom of God on earth. And they didn't start a ministry on their own. Rather, they joined Jesus in what he was already doing in the world and in the lives of people around their city. They didn't go in their own strength. They were empowered by the Spirit of God, nor were they trying to make a name for themselves. As Christ's ambassadors, they were representing His name and the interests of His kingdom. And the effect is obvious, right? Despite intensifying opposition, more and more people throughout Jerusalem were hearing the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, and they were placing their lives into His care. They were coming to faith in Jesus. Well, the first seven chapters in Acts, which we've considered thus far in our study, is essentially about the formation and growth of the church in Jerusalem. Today we begin chapter 8, and chapters 8 through 12 are essentially about the spread of the church from Jerusalem to the regions of Samaria and Judea. And then the rest of the book, beginning in chapter 13, 
uh, chronicles the advance of the church to the far reaches of the known world at that time. This morning, as we pick up our study, we find ourselves at the pivotal event, the pivotal event that launched the church out from Jerusalem. And we need to recognize up front that this was not a happy event. Not at all. And yet its effects brought indescribable joy to literally millions of people worldwide, beginning on that very day and continuing to our very own. In other words, church, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. And that is a, is it not, that is a life lesson we are learning over and over again. So I want to read the whole of chapter 8. I want to take this morning and, and, and walk through the whole of chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. You may recall that, that chapter 7 ends with uh, the martyrdom of this man named Stephen, who was a faithful follower of Christ. And chapter 8 begins, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And, and they paid attention to him for a long, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money 
saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for, the Lord, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come true. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Amen. Father, we want to thank you for the morning, and we want to thank you for your word again this morning. We thank you that your word reveals to us your heart, and it is truth for our lives. And so please let us know this morning. Please help us to understand more of who you are, more of your heart and more of your will for us. And do this, we pray, for our eternal good and for the, for the glory of your great name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I want you to imagine yourself at the stoning of this man, Stephen. Stephen was a pillar in the church well regarded by all, chosen to serve as a leader in the congregation. 
Stephen oversaw the care of widows in the church, serving humbly behind the scenes, and yet he was also out in the community, we know, speaking boldly about Jesus, even though it got him arrested, even when he appeared before the Jewish council that wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They thought they had put an end to Jesus and had been trying to squelch all talk of Jesus ever since. But Stephen was a man of faith, and, and he remained faithful to the very end. Imagine, I want you to imagine being there just outside Jerusalem as members of the council were overcome with rage. See their faces. We're told that they were gnashing their teeth. See them as they began hurling rocks and boulders of different shapes and sizes upon the head and body of this man, Stephen. See the almost uncontrolled hatred in their eyes and the injustice of it all. The sights and sounds would turn the stomach. Picture the riotous crowd standing over Stephen and his soon-to-be lifeless body. Hear the thuds and the groans. And then pan out, if you can. Pan out and, and you'll see a lone solitary figure standing nearby. A man of authority, it seems, at whose feet the others laid down their cloaks and robes. A young man, a ruler, and he's approving of it all. And we're introduced to this man in the very first verse of chapter 8. His name is Saul. And by verse 3, we learn that Saul began ravaging the church, member by member, house by house. It says in verse 1, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Saul apparently led the attack, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, throwing them into prison. In chapter 9, we read how Saul was breathing threats and murder against those who believed in the Lord. Make no mistake, it was not an easy time being a Christian in that region at that time. Identifying with Jesus uh, came with cost. But persecution could not derail God, right? Or keep God's people down. To the contrary, they scattered out from Jerusalem into the regions of Judea and Samaria. And according to verse 4, they went about preaching the word, that is, the message of Jesus. Though deeply saddened by Stephen's martyrdom, obviously, uh, it was his unjust execution that actually galvanized the church around the cause of Christ. This is what propelled them forward uh, and led them to tell others about Jesus. And amazingly, even Saul, of all people, eventually came to saving faith in Christ, as we will see next week 
in the next chapter. Saul became the Apostle Paul, and God was pleased to send him out into the reaches of the known world with the message of Jesus. Many who never heard the name of Christ would come to believe in him through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Many churches in many different cities would be formed under Paul's tutelage and leadership. And Paul, I assume, Paul must have talked with Luke. Luke, who wrote the the book of Acts, Paul must have talked with Luke, this Luke who traveled with Paul on many of those travels. He must have talked with Luke about Stephen and Stephen's death. And so Luke includes this detail that Saul was standing in approval while Stephen was being killed because it seems that that Paul wants us to know that Stephen's life affected him. And Stephen's death impacted him. And that Paul was living proof that even the fiercest enemy cannot deter God and his redemptive plan. And I ask you, who but God could have known that at that time? Who could have possibly known that Stephen's greatest contribution historically came not through his deliverance, but rather through his death? Saul was converted by, uh, not by seeing Stephen delivered. He was converted in part because he watched how Stephen died. You know, they say... You can tell a lot about a person by how he or she faces death. And Stephen faced death so well that seeds of faith were sown in Saul's heart that day and seeds that took root and eventually bore a harvest of faith in Saul's life. So I was reminded of this scenario. This event. How many of you know the names Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, Roger Yauderian? These five men who went to Ecuador in the 1950s to reach the Alca Indians for Christ. But instead, they were slaughtered in 1956 by members of the Waodani tribe. And yet their wives, along with others, rather than retreat in bitterness and fear, continued the work and led many members of that tribe to Jesus. Even some who were directly responsible for their husband's death. In the same way, Stephen's death brought about new life for a whole new generation to come. So church, do not think for one moment that your life cannot impact others. No matter the opposition, no matter your age or situation, how you face life 
and how you face death matters to those who are watching, listening, and thinking about what it all means. I want you to think about the Saul's in your life even today. People who want nothing to do with Jesus today. People who may even be vehemently opposed to Jesus today, just as Saul was. And imagine them meeting Jesus and being transformed by Jesus and then amazingly becoming ambassadors for Jesus as Saul did. And then imagine this. Imagine that it's your life. It's your living, breathing testimony. It's you that God is going to use to impact that individual. It's you. It's your words. It's your witness. It's your behavior. What if you are the Stephen to the Saul's in your life? Through Stephen's martyrdom... And the subsequent persecution, the gospel began to extend from Jerusalem out into the surrounding regions. And at this point, Luke follows the path of one man in particular, Philip. Chapter 8 is essentially about Philip and his journey. Philip was a man like Stephen. A faithful, everyday member of the congregation who took up the cause and carried it forward. Just like the wives of those five men who were killed in Ecuador. Reminds me of a young Denzel Washington in the movie Glory. That Civil War movie based on a true story when he takes up the flag from one of his fallen comrades and leads the charge against the enemy. Sorry for any spoilers there. But that movie is 30 years old, so if you've not seen it yet, that's on you. You know, we first read of Philip back in chapter 6. Like Stephen, he was one of the seven, seven men of good repute. He was wise and full of the Holy Spirit who were chosen by the church to help care for widows, both Jewish and Greek-speaking widows. And so whereas Stephen was the, uh, was the focus of chapter 7, Philip's story now uh, garners our attention in chapter 8. And he was not an apostle, notice. Philip wasn't. Luke makes this very clear in, in verse 1 when he notes that everyone scattered throughout Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And church, I, I think this is so important. I don't want us to miss this. This is an important detail because it means, it means that the first time the gospel advanced out from Jerusalem, it was not by way of the apostles, as we might expect, but by the, by the witness of everyday members of the congregation, people like Philip and those of us in this room. It was everyday followers of Jesus that God used to take the gospel out from Jerusalem. 
First, we see Philip in a city of Samaria. He's proclaiming Christ, and the people listened intently to what, what he said, and they watched in amazement at, uh, at what he did because people were being freed from demonic oppression and healed from their infirmities. Uh, both his words and his deeds impacted the Samaritans, and according to verse 8, there was much joy in that city. Now, to understand the significance of that statement, we need to remember uh, uh, that Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Basically, they hated each other. Uh, it was a mutual hatred that stretched all the way back to the time when Israel was divided into two kingdoms, north and south. So when the northern kingdom, way back in uh, 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, the Israelites in the north began to intermarry with foreigners and, uh, and practice foreign religion. And when the southern kingdom was invaded by the Babylonians in 605 B.C., when, when they returned from their Babylonian exile in 539, they <clears throat> rebuilt the temple and renewed their worship of the one true God. In other words, what's going on here is they considered themselves to be loyal to God, while the people of Samaria in the north were disloyal. They considered them to be, uh, the Jews basically considered the Samaritans to be uh, uh, racial half-breeds and idolaters. And so they hated each other. In fact, it was very, very common that when a Jew wanted to travel north, instead of passing directly through Samaria, which would have been the easier way, they would go all the way around Samaria so as to not even have to interact with those people. So let's not miss what's happening here in Acts chapter 8. Philip is proclaiming Christ in Samaria, and verse 12 says they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they came to faith in Jesus and were baptized, both men and women. You see, Jesus reconciles people to God and also to one another so that even the centuries-long animosity between Jew and Samaritan was being replaced by joy and faith. That's amazing. What a gift. And then we're introduced to this man named Simon, a Samaritan man, a magician. But not your, like when you hear magician, obviously, it's not your run-of-the-mill, card trick, sleight-of-hand illusionist. Now, Simon practiced magic in the occult-like sense of the word, like witchcraft and sorcery and other forms of occultism. He had a following in that city, and Luke says in verse 13 that even he believed and was baptized. But we come to learn something about Simon that reveals an ugly side 
of the human heart and really is a mirror for us in a sense. For when the church in Jerusalem heard that what was happening in Samaria, how the Samaritans were coming to faith in Christ, they sent the apostles Peter and John down to pray for them and to impart to them the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to spend much time on, that, on the imparting of the Holy Spirit, but I do want to say as an aside uh, that I do believe that that was unique, that, that what we read here was unique to that point in history, to, to at that point, at that time in history. You know, we've talked about, we're going to journey through Acts, and we're going to see some things that are descriptive and some things that are prescriptive, and, and it's my strong belief that, that what we're seeing here is more descriptive of what happened then rather than prescriptive of what happens now. Because the Scripture clearly teaches that when a person comes to faith in Jesus, at that moment, uh, you, are born, you, you are born of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God comes to live inside you. And so your responsibility, if we want to call it that, your role is to, is to walk with the Spirit who lives and dwells in you, and leads you in the ways of God. I believe this is more descriptive than prescriptive. But getting back to Simon, he saw how the Spirit was given through Peter and John, and he wanted in on the action. He wanted that power. He wanted to draw crowds and amaze people as he did with his magic. And so he offered to buy it. And the wickedness of his heart was quickly exposed. Simon was guilty of what we might call the Jesus plus mentality that plagues so many people today. I mean, so many people today, am I, am I right, that so many people today, they profess faith in Jesus as long as they get other benefits too. As long as they gain status, influence, ability, material possessions, etc., as long as they get that, They'll accept Christ. But I contend that accepting Jesus in this way is to not accept him at all. Because if you're still wanting to set the terms of your relationship with God, then you don't yet understand what it means to receive Jesus as Lord on his terms. So Philip's witness in Samaria leads to great celebration as many Samaritans come to saving faith in Christ, and yet it also brings a great warning to make sure that your faith is, in fact, rooted in Jesus, not in Jesus plus. And then we see that Philip was led in another direction, 
told by an angel to head south on the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. And I just want us to know that this was no small thing. This was no small endeavor. It was actually some backtracking that took place as Philip would have had to travel over 85 miles, probably by foot, to get to Gaza. And Gaza was not a desired destination. It says it was a desert place, meaning it was desolate. It was barren. But there was a man there uh, who God wanted Philip to meet, an Ethiopian who was returning home and reading the prophet Isaiah, specifically that prophecy in Isaiah 53 that speaks of the suffering of the Messiah. And it says, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now, of course, we know this prophecy to point to Jesus, to his unjust crucifixion and to his willingness to be led to slaughter. We know Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who died not for his wrongs, but for ours, not for any moral corruption on his part, but because of our sinful nature. And Philip knew this too. So beginning with Isaiah 53, Philip begins teaching the man, telling the man the good news about Jesus. And I just want us to pause here, church, and learn from Philip's example. I want us specifically, what, what did Philip do? What exactly did Philip do? What steps did he take and what can we learn from them? And I have, I, I just, I count eight things that Philip did, eight steps he took that I think are helpful for us to know. First, he obeyed the Lord by heading to Gaza uh, despite whatever inconvenience it may have caused. He obeyed. He obeyed. Second, he trusted the Lord to reveal to him why he was supposed to be in Gaza in the first place. You know, that piece of information wasn't told him at first. Not until he was on the road did the Holy Spirit lead him to the Ethiopian man. So he obeyed and he trusted he trusted that God would reveal why. Why am I doing this? I don't know why I'm doing this now. God, I'm going to trust you to let me know when you see fit. Third, he asked the man if he understood what he was reading. He didn't presume, but was observant, and he began with a question. Fourth, he made time for the man by accepting his invitation to come and sit with him and help him. He made time. He made time. 
Fifth, he allowed room for the man's questions. He allowed room for the man's questions, which requires some active listening and attentiveness, and hear this church, appreciating where the man was in his specific faith journey at that time. I think that's so instructive that sometimes we want to take people along without appreciating where they're, where they're at. Sixth, he talked about Jesus. He talked from the Scripture about how the message of Scripture points to Jesus and how the message of Jesus is good news. Seventh, by all accounts, by all accounts, Philip led this man to faith. Apparently, at some point during their conversation, the man believed what the Scripture teaches and placed his trust in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the one who came to save, and Philip was the instrument to lead him there. And eighth, as they traveled, they came upon some water, and the, demand, and the man declared his desire to be baptized as a way of declaring his faith in Jesus, so Philip baptized him. In other words, let's not overcomplicate this. There's water. I want to be baptized. Let's be baptized. And when they came up out of the water, verse 49, verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. So I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm up. Philip's gone. And the man is overcome with joy. And I don't know how this works. But suddenly Philip found himself in Azotus. According to verse 40. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And so I have just a, a, a map here, because I want you to see here what, what's going on. I have a map if you want to put that up there. So obviously these destinations are, are numbered. So, so Philip begins in Jerusalem, moves up to Samaria, proclaims Christ there. The Spirit says, go back south pass through Jerusalem, get on that road that leads to Gaza. He meets the Ethiopian there. Then he finds himself in Azotus. And then he makes his way to Joppa and then up to Caesarea. And I love how Luke says that Philip found himself 
at Azotus. Uh, as if he's just going along for the ride. Because I think that's actually the point, church. I think the point is that God is leading the way. God is advancing the gospel. God is wanting people everywhere to hear the good news about Jesus. And we're just coming along for the ride like Philip, participating with God in what God is doing in the world and in the lives of people. One minute, Philip is in Samaria. Uh, then he's on a desert road to Gaza. Then in the city of Azotus. Then Joppa. Then Caesarea. He's just following God's lead sharing God's message of good news. And I ask, isn't that something we can do as well? Thanks, Kyle. And so I have an example, a very recent example, that I want to share with you to encourage you. And he and I talked about this already. Just last Sunday, just last Sunday, Ross and Lauren Elmendorf led a man to Christ. A longtime friend of the Elmendorf family, the father of one of Ross's best friends. Ross, as you've essentially known him your whole life. And as Ross relayed the story to me, I couldn't help but think of this passage because like Philip, Ross simply obeyed the Lord by going to this man's house without knowing what would, what would become of his visit. And he talked, uh, he, Ross trusted the Lord and made time for this man. He actually, you know, I was talking with Ross last Sunday and we, we prayed together before he took off. And, and it was, I could see the conflict in Ross's eyes because Ross wanted to be part of what we were doing last Sunday here in our joint service. And yet he knew God was leading him there. And so he just trusted the Lord that he was supposed to be there, not here. Though he wanted to be here. And he made time for that man, and he, and, he, and he walked that man through Scripture, and he talked about Jesus, just reading Scripture. They would, they would open Scripture together, and they would read it together, and then he would ask questions of the man, do you understand this? making sure that he understood. And Ross assured him of hope, he and Lauren both, of hope in Jesus. And, and they asked him if he would like to know Jesus personally. And as the man began to cry, literally through tears of joy, he surrendered his life to Christ. And Ross has known this man for years. And at the man's request, Ross will be baptizing this man very soon. Obviously, that is a very, 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 very meaningful story. 
But you know what makes it even more meaningful? Stay with me on this. It's that the reason Ross was invited to this man's house in the first place is because this man is dying of cancer. And it was the cancer that brought this man to a place. It was the cancer and the reality of death that brought this man to a place where he wanted to understand more about Jesus. And so I want to conclude with the same thought with which I began. That what Satan means for evil, God means for good. I don't understand it, but I believe it. Those in Acts who opposed the church methodically intensified their efforts. Eventually, they killed Stephen and unleashed widespread persecution. But little did they know that Stephen's martyrdom, as terrible as it was, in God's sight too, was the turning point that sent the church out into the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And church, I just want this to encourage us to enliven our witness. I want you to know in even deeper ways as as Stephen did and as Philip did and as Ross and Lauren have learned recently that God reigns over the events of your life, providentially orchestrating things in ways you cannot possibly understand in full right now so that even the most difficult difficulty in your life, from common trials to cancer to life-threatening persecution, has a redemptive purpose. Thank God. Has a redemptive purpose. That God has a redemptive plan and He is perfecting, He is working His plan to perfection. And trials and cancer and persecution will not stop Him. What, What Satan means for evil, God means for good. Amen. Thank you for impressing this truth upon us again this morning, Lord. May it take even greater hold of our lives and deepen our faith that we cannot even possibly imagine. We pray that your purposes, uh, your good purposes, your good purposes that would, that would uh, lead us to Christ and deepen our walk with Christ and... and um, and empower our witness for Christ. We pray that those things would would take effect and and be unfurled in our lives even today. Even today. In whatever our circumstance or situation. So give us joy and hope and peace in great measure. Amen. Amen.